You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded in Chicago at the Clio Cloud Conference, which has returned to the beautiful Radisson Blue Aqua Hotel. We're here to cover this event for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have Miss Jane Reardon. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here, Lawrence. Great. So now you are presenting in the Legal Technology Track, an event called Professionalism as a Survival Strategy, correct? That's right. Okay, perfect. So we want to get into that. But before we do that, I'd like uh, like to give our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So where do you work and what do you do? Oh, thanks for asking. I currently am the executive director of a commission of the Illinois Supreme Court called the Commission on Professionalism. Prior to that, I worked for the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission, which registers and disciplines lawyers. Prior to that, for a number of years, I was a trial lawyer in two different law firms here in Chicago. Well, getting back to the professionalism as a survival strategy, so how long was your speaking engagement? It was an hour. An hour. Okay, so you obviously hit quite a few topics, and so can you give us the general synopsis as to what you were covering? So I started, Lawrence, with a brief overview of the changes that are affecting the practice of law. A lot of these topics were covered by other speakers at this conference, and a lot of the Clio uh, cloud participants are well aware of the fact that technology and globalization is uh, are making great headways into changing the way we practice law. From there, and the focus was, you need to be aware, despite these changes, perhaps even more because of these changes, that there are ethical rules that are implicated, and you need to abide by the ethical rules. And then beyond that, I talked about professionalism principles and considerations that aren't ensconced directly in the rules, but all of us who practice law recognize that we need to do more than the minimum required by the rules to be professional. You know, and and, uh, we've been covering a lot of these different conferences and events, and, you know, uh, there seems to be an embracement of technology within the legal profession, so much so that a lot of state bars are beginning to sort of change their tune a little bit and beginning to require by suggestion a certain level of technology compliance in order to be up to date in your skill set. And so in addition to that, I'd love you to comment on that, by the way, uh, what are some of the other changes that you're starting to see happen within the bar associations around the country? Okay, well, first about the about the suggestions to embrace technology it's actually going further than that okay the ABA model rules added a comment to the definition of competency uh, a couple of years back and most states uh, follow the lead of the ABA model rules and they say in comment eight to that model rule hey in order to be competent you must stay abreast of changes in technology that affect the substance of the law as well as the practice of the law. So that has redirected many of the people in Illinois and other state uh, bars to embrace the importance of technology as a subject of continuing legal education and and they're training up lawyers to become more facile with technology. And, you know, it seems also, I mean, in in addition to this, uh, the technology, kind of part of it is the security of information, um, knowing when something's secure in the cloud, not giving away, um, you know, 
client confidences and things like that. Um, and it's so much. I mean, the world's moving so fast. And this, this, this standard, it's not a bright line standard. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, like you said, it was in the comment, but it doesn't seem that there's a, sp- you have to know X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, you're going to get into trouble. There seems to be a gray line here. So Man, there is a gray line, Lawrence, but I'll tell you, it's it's becoming clearer and clearer okay. that there's guidance in the rules. So specifically with respect to confidentiality, that is rule 1.6. And it provides that lawyers must take reasonable steps to guard against the unauthorized or inadvertent disclosure of information concerning a client's representation. So it's a pretty broad um, obligation. And then the comments say, okay, here are the factors that decide whether you took the reasonable efforts. And they lay out, you know, it depends on the type of information, what steps you took, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a huge ethical rule for lawyers to make sure they stay um, current uh, with. They can't just say, ah, my IT guy took care of it. We really do have to take personal steps. So in addition to uh, Rule 1.6, what are some of the other areas you're seeing changing in accord with the, the new uh, innovations and technology for legal representation that are being presented? And, and uh, you know, like what, what else are you seeing coming on the horizon? Well, coming on the horizon are some possible changes to the advertising rules. Okay. Many of the advertising rules are, frankly, outdated, and they don't have not kept step with what is the reality of technology. One small example is the requirements, and it depends state by state, but generally a lot of states have specific rules about you must put on your envelope advertising materials or you have to have a disclaimer (laughs) at the beginning and the end of an electronic communication that this is advertising. Well, how does that translate when you have 140 characters on a tweet? Right. So we have our challenges to make sure that there are ethical guidelines, but they need to make sense. And as I said to the participants at the conference today, the ABA and the Association of um, Professional Responsibility Lawyers are looking at possibly streamlining uh, the advertising rules and making them simpler for lawyers to follow. Okay, and are there some additional changes coming down the pipeline? or? I think that there will be down the road, and I, I, this is just a personal opinion, some changes to the unauthorized practice of law rule. Okay. As you know, you have to be licensed to practice in the jurisdiction you practice, and that becomes very difficult to monitor when um, a lot of lawyers are getting clients and um, practicing via the internet, right? So state by state by state regulation and monitoring is a challenge. I don't know what the ultimate result would be, but I did um, talk to the participants today. We had a bit of a discussion about the uniform bar examination, as you may know. New York is the first very largely populous state to say, yep, we're going that route effective in uh, July of 2016. And that means if if a lawyer passes the bar in one UBA state, they can practice in others. And that will ch- dramatically change not only who is admitted where, but I believe it, it could also ultimately change the way we regulate lawyers and discipline them. If there's an, eventually a national standard, I don't know if there will be or not be, but if there is, then you have to question why would we regulate state by state? If there's a national bar exam, should there be a national 
interdisciplinary approach. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, that so is a good that's, point. So that's a query and a wonderment that I have, but I think there's a natural extension there. So I'm keeping an eye on UBE. Some of the uh, trends you're seeing with the UBE, are you seeing similar corresponding trends with reciprocity between those same states? Well, yes, there is reciprocity between the UBE states, but similarly, I'm seeing that the state boundaries are dropping uh, with respect to allowing foreign lawyers to practice for limited purposes, gotcha. or if you're um, counsel in a in a corporation or what have you. So many states, uh, it seems like daily, there's another state that says, yes, we'll allow foreign lawyers to come in for limited purposes, or if they're affiliated with a corporation, multinational or, or otherwise. So the boundaries are becoming fluid, and I think the challenge is, therefore, to holding on to professionalism become even greater. You know, uh, there's been a lot of outcry for access to justice, and there's just been sort of a, a tidal wave of opinion that legal services cost too much, and even people that make a relatively decent living can't afford legal services for much needed uh, situations in their lives. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that other countries have been experimenting with a model of ownership for an entity that practices law, you know, calling for public ownership or basically non-attorney ownership of an entity that practices law. So I wanted to ask you about that. There's opinions all over the fence on that. United States does not allow that. And so you can't have non-attorneys involved in an entity that practices law. And there's, there's obviously some conflict of interest that play into that. So I just wanted to to kind of get your feel, uh, kind of understand where you stand on that, where you think that's going to go. Personally, I'm fascinated by uh, this development. Um, The the alternative business structures are thriving in England and in Australia. They're under consideration in Canada. I think they make sense in a lot of ways. One of the things I talked about today was the model of the limited license legal technician. Yep, triple LTs. Yep, the triple LTs have taken off in Washington state, and many other states are looking very seriously at this development. Um, That is to have a paraprofessional that's not a full-fledged lawyer providing more reasonably um, expensed services, right? Okay. So not only do we have that limited license going on in Washington state as an attempt to bridge the access to justice gap, the Washington state Supreme Court also adapted their ethical rules to allow ownership and shared ownership between the LLTs and lawyers. If they're in the same firms, Interesting. they can share fees. They can also um, be part of the management committee. They cannot have a majority interest. So this is the first state in the United States to allow sharing fees between lawyers and non-lawyers. Um, I think all eyes are on that to see how it will develop. But I must say, Lawrence, that this uh, situation has been the case for many, many years in Washington, D.C., and the sky hasn't fallen. So I think that a lot of people are looking at changing the ethical rules against ABSs 
as a way to to allow the lawyers to practice, frankly, in the way the clients want to be served. Well, you know, it certainly as it's been applied to other industries, you know, the public or, you know, I guess limited or kind of a private offering of ownership has certainly led to certain efficiencies when it's called, you know, raising capital to to uh, have a better, bigger factory or, you know, you get investors to invest in a new type of technology. It's certainly been an efficient conduit for resources to get to you know the labor that's involved in to getting the resources that are needed to you know to produce a product or a service. So I guess one of the things though I think a lot of people and I think rightfully so are concerned with is the conflict of interest that that could present. And so now doctors, similar similar model, you know, you don't, uh, there, there's a restriction on having uh, outside ownership, non-doctor ownership of a uh, medical practice. And so uh, I guess you think about this a lot. What, what are some of the safeguards, you know, let's say that the United States embraces that model of, of, a, of an alternative ownership model. What are some of the safeguards you could see predictably being put into place to, to, to prevent that conflict of interest? Well, the way I look at our ethical rules is that they have put in place some pretty strict requirements, and the assumption is that lawyers will not do the right thing unless these rules are in place. And I'd like to, ch- to challenge that paradigm. Okay. You know, when I practiced law, I did a lot of medical malpractice defense work. So my bills were paid by the insurance companies, but my duty was owed to the doctors, right? And there's many, many examples of a similar situation where the money is coming from one direction, but the lawyer owes a fiduciary duty in another direction. I think we can hold on to that without basically tying one arm behind our back due to the ethical rules. I'm not sure what, how that will all look, if and when it does come into play, but I'm confident that it can be accomplished. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, I want to thank you for coming down and chatting with us about all these issues and, and uh, being part of the Clio Cloud uh, Conference coverage. And so wanted to give you an opportunity to leave some contact information for our listeners. So if they wanted to reach out to you, ask some more questions about what they've heard today, how can they get a hold of you? Oh, thanks for that. They can contact me at the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. My email address is Jane, and it's spelled with a Y, J-A-Y-N-E dot Reardon, R-E-A-R-D-O-N, at two, the number two, civility.org. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti, signing off from Chicago. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.